Morning, Crosswalk. How we doing? We good? We're excited. Must have some Californians in the room. Yeah? Yeah. They always scream. I don't know. I don't know why. They scream. Canadians always like, it's a good day. Um, but they're just so nice and polite. Uh, yeah, so happy 4th of July weekend. I know a ton, a ton, because I know because of all my ministry leaders that were talking about getting people to come and volunteer and help this weekend. So many people are gone. So many people are traveling. Um, and if they're traveling by airplane, God bless them. Let's hope that they actually get to their destinations. Uh, it is a mess right now. If you guys have paid attention to what's going on with airline travel and all that. I know Megan and Brian were gone and didn't know if they'd be back today or not, but they are here. So excited to have you guys back. Um, I have to start off by saying that um, I lied to the worship team about what I was preaching on today. When I say lie, I meant that a few weeks ago it sounded like a good idea. And then since then, we've kinda, we're kind of going through some stuff in our country in our world, and so I changed a little bit of the topic today um, for that. But before I get into that, I, I know Sharika said at the beginning that we have our series guides for the next series, which starts next week. And the great thing about going through a book in the Bible, too, actually, First and Second Timothy, to do this in the summer is that it's easy to follow along even if you're gone. Um, we're just going chapter by chapter through the book of First and Second Timothy of what Paul was saying to Timothy and how those instructions uh, really are about deepening his faith. And I want to invite you to come because next week we go into 1 Timothy 1 that uses one of those trigger words, uses that word homosexual in it. So we got to go there a little bit. And the next week, the ladies will like to come for sure because Paul talks about the women being quiet in church. <laughs> come on. It's going to be good, I promise. You will see it in a way, hopefully, you haven't seen it before. Um, and we'll try to get at what Paul was actually saying when he said those things. So, um, looking forward to that. Grab one of these series books. I do have to say they keep using a font that is for 18 to 22-year-olds. I keep talking to them about that, but that's okay. We'll get there. So, it is 4th of July weekend. Uh, first of all, a big welcome, too, for those that have been here, are here for the first time. Even when our numbers are smaller here, last week we had the smallest numbers we've had yet, but it's summer, and that's where we're at. Um, but we still saw new faces, and so super excited to have you here. We hope you experience this as a place of belonging, uh, where you feel loved, uh, wherever you're coming from, whatever your background is, whatever your beliefs are. We just want you to feel safe, and this is a place that you can belong, that you can worship, and hopefully catch a glimpse of Jesus. But, as I said, 4th of July weekend, even though there is still a ban on some fireworks, I'm sure you've already heard them in your neighborhoods. I'm sure how many dog owners are out there? This is not a fun, fun time for our dogs. Um, my dog, uh, we have two, uh, and one of their tail, as soon as he hears that first firework, it just goes like this, and he's done. Um, and that, I was super sad to find out Fort Vancouver is not having their fireworks this year because of a variety of reasons. That's what I grew up going to. Um, but here in America, we like to celebrate this weekend with our love for fire and explosions. <laughs> Amen, right? America. And we do that. Sometimes by mixing alcohol with it, which is a bad combination. If you didn't already know that by common knowledge. Um, I worked for three and a half years in high school as a technician of environmental services at a hospital, a.k.a. janitor. 
sounded really cool, they'd be like, we need a technician of environmental services. I'm like, uh, yeah, I got a mop. <laughs> and the busiest days of the year were Halloween, New Year's, and Fourth of July because of the mixture of explosions and alcohol. So, um, but I am wondering this year as we celebrate the Fourth of July, which is typically celebrating our independence, it's celebrating those who fought for our freedom, all of those kinds of things. But this year, in the context of all that we've been going through, my question is, what are we celebrating? Look at your news feed, scroll through your social media, you'll see people that are angry, afraid, and deeply divided. Pro-life or pro-choice, climate change, economy, borders and immigration, church and state, free speech, gun rights, the list goes on and on every time we look at our phones. And it's sad, but it's not much different in the church. In the church, we're divided over policies and politics and procedures, doctrine, gender equality, hierarchy, how we treat all of God's children, how we read our Bible, on and on and on. We are not a people united on much of anything. So in a time of deep division and on a weekend that we celebrate our freedom and in theory, these united states, I've been reflecting on how we change the tide. How do we respond to this moment we're in? How do you and I keep from living divided? And what could we speak to that might help us as a people and a church be agents of healing and hope and peace in a world at war? As I consider this, I found myself thinking about the life and ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a regular source of inspiration for me, who also lived in divided times in a world at war. And yet Dr. King went against the current of his times to lead a movement of change. And how did he do that? What was his focus? What can we learn from his approach that could help us love well? Well, from a jail cell in Georgia, Dr. King wrote these words. Modern psychology recognizes what Jesus taught centuries ago. Hate divides the personality and love in an amazing and exonerable way unites it. As he stared at the bars holding him and reflected on the hatred that put him there, he continued to write, time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities that surrender to hatred and violence. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind we must follow another way. What is that other way? It's simple, yet incredibly difficult to follow, obviously. Dr. King made it clear in a startling historical comparison where he said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, Napoleon built great empires, but on what did they depend? They depended upon force. But centuries ago, Jesus started an empire that was built on love, and even to this day, millions will die for him. Could it be as simple as love? Could love be the answer to the world's divisions and our rage? I quote the 1965 song all the time because it's so true. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, not just for the ones you agree with, not just for the ones on the same political party, not just for the ones that believe everything you already believe, but for everyone, everyone. What the world needs now is love, but just because it's a simple answer doesn't make it an easy one. Jesus was killed because of the way he loved other people. 2,000 years ago, he predicted our current state of affairs. Just before his death, he said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. 
Now, he said this in a chapter, Matthew 24, where he's talking about the end of times. What's going to be happening? What are some of the signs of the end of times? And I will be the first to say that I am not an end of time alarmist, okay? I don't have anything necessarily wrong uh, with that, but we get off. I've never stood on a street corner with a sign that says, repent or burn, which also has never made me want to repent, but never done that. I've never actually handed out a tract to someone. And don't tell the conference people, because I may get fired. I don't know. I don't know what the rules are. But I'm just not that kind, because here's what I think. I think that you can spend so much time focusing on when Jesus is going to come that you miss the Jesus that is here now. And you can also spend so much time trying to get into the prophecies, trying to figure things out, trying to look at all the, all the maps and all the different things. And then while you're doing that, you get hit by a car crossing the street. And guess what? That's when Jesus comes for you. As far as you know. <laughs> Let's not get into the theology of that. It's <laughs> not what the sermon's about. Um, but that said, I do think we're living in a time where the love of most is growing cold. I do think that that is one of the marks that maybe we're getting to that place. We are losing our ability to listen to one another, to be okay with a difference of opinion or belief. We cancel people at the drop of a hat. We can't tolerate much of anything anymore if it's not exactly what we believe already. In fact, we've been using this term. Somebody says something that we don't believe, we say, that's offensive. I'm hurt by your words. Is that the kind of world we're living in now? We can't even listen to a belief that's different than ours? This warning doesn't just come to those outside the church. In the Matthew passage, Jesus is talking to those inside the church. The Apostle Paul once said that if you speak in tongues or you can predict the future or understand all mysteries or have great faith, things that we all think are great, important things, great faith, but he says you can have all those things, but if you don't have love, you've got nothing. Zip, zilch, nada, nothing. Those are harsh words. Jesus even spoke a prophetic word in Revelation to the church in Ephesus who was doing good things but was missing the mark. They had forgotten the plot. He said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, but I have this complaint against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So what do you think? Has the love of most grown cold in our times? Have we forgotten our first love so much that we can no longer envision a path towards reconciliation, forgiveness, and change? Dr. King simply lived the life that tried to emulate his teacher, his leader. A verse that we quote often here at Crosswalk, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. King described Christ's love like this. Love is the most durable power, uh, power in the world. This creative force, so beautifully exemplified in the life of Christ, is the most potent instrument available in mankind's quest for peace and security. But I know, easy to say, hard to do, right? Our lives are so full of distractions and busyness. We're like Martha barking orders at other people just to survive the day. We are stressed, weary, and our fuses are short. I feel this way often, especially when I drive. But I also know the power of taking the time to drink deep from the well of God's love. I have seen it change people, and I have seen it change me. So practically, how do you and I go from living in a love-depleted and distracted world to a love-abundant world focused 
on that which matters most? How can we become agents of love that changes and transforms, heals, and provides us all with hope? I think an answer is found in a prayer written by the Apostle Paul to the same church that Jesus talked to in the book of Revelation. A prayer that was also written from a jail cell. And I believe that in this prayer lies the secret as to how we can live with a love that carries with it the power to replace anger with kindness, anxiety with peace, intolerance with patience, and divisions with unity. So, if you want to follow along, you've got a card on the way in, or you can open up your phones, or you can look at the uh, Sky Bible, I think we call it here at Crosswalk, as we'll look at some of the verses on the screen from Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. This is a prayer that I have prayed from the, for this church from the moment we learned that we were coming to Portland to help plant it. So this means a lot to me. Paul begins the prayer by telling us about his posture for prayer. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. So his posture is kneeling. Now in scripture, there are three most common types of postures for prayer. The first um, is standing, as when Jesus talked about the tax collector and the Pharisee that were standing and praying to God. The second is to prostrate, which is to lie with your face down. Moses and David did this a lot it's very, in lots of different places in the Bible. And it's funny because I think I've told this story before, but um, I, was, I was at another institution working uh, on a campus and church. And um, uh, we had a worship night, and I invited the congregation there to worship in the way they felt called. We were going to keep the lights, you know, dark and just lights on the stage so they could not think about what everybody else was looking at, whether they were being looked at or judged or whatever. But I mentioned these postures for prayer, and I said, if you feel like you want to sit and listen and reflect, sit, listen, and reflect. If you want to kneel, then kneel. If you want to stand and raise your hands, you can do that. If you want to prostrate, and I said that and laid out. After the service, I had a, a couple of parents who were visiting, trying to check this place out and see if it was okay to send their children here, who came up to me and said, man, when you said the word prostrate, I turned to my husband and said, Pentecostal? <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. And I said, I was a little salty that day. <clears throat> I said, oh, no, 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 no. I think what you meant to say was biblical. <laughs> it's, in, it's in the Bible. Um, but... I digress. So that's another posture for prayer. But of course, the final posture is the one where you get down on your knees as a servant does to a king. And one of the most meaningful places to me in scripture where this happens is in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before Jesus' arrest. He kneels before the Father as if to say, Father God, please listen to this prayer. Hear what I have to say. So this is an important prayer for Paul. So he's kneeling and then he tells us who's he, who he's addressing. He says, the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul recognizes right off the bat the God he prays to. This is the same God who created all things. He acknowledges that his God isn't a puny God, but rather the maker of heaven and earth from whom man receives his every breath. Paul continues talking about this God and says, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time on this passage. You can keep it up on the screen. The NLT says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources. Paul is praying to the God that he believes actually can answer his prayers. 
The God that Paul will later say is able to do immeasurably more than all I can ask for or even imagine. God can do abundantly more than we ask for. And Paul begins this prayer by remembering how mighty and powerful God is. But then Paul mentions this idea of an inner being. What is an inner being? Well, Paul uses this at least in a couple of different places, the same terminology. 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says that outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. In Romans 7.22, he writes, For in my inner being I delight in God's law. Pastor and author Timothy Keller says that we often think the inner being means the heart. However, to just say the heart is misleading. You see, we often consider the heart to be the seat of our emotions. We say we want to get at the heart of the matter, which assumes the intellect or the mind is disconnected from emotions. For a long time, our faith tradition is accused to being a little too heady, a little too intellectual, and we've forgotten about the heart of the matter. The problem is, is that we assume that the head and the heart are somehow against each other instead of important tools that can, can and must work collaboratively in the inner being. A doctor friend of mine says that he always laughs when he's a neurologist. He always laughs when somebody says that the longest uh, journey is from the head to the heart. He says, you know that's like from here to here, actually. The longest journey from there to there. But anyway, that's, he's a scientist, so what does he know? Um, but, just kidding. Um, you see, if something touches you in the emotive center of your being, if you feel something strongly, but that feeling doesn't change how you think or act, then it hasn't actually gotten down into your inner being. The same is true for a thought. If you have a thought of something that's powerful to you, but it doesn't change how you think or feel, then that thought hasn't really penetrated into your inner being. Your inner being is the seat of your person. It is a core of who you are, and it includes both the head and the heart. Both must be impacted in order for real change to occur. We see this phenomenon every year in New Year's resolutions. Now, I don't make them. I don't know how many of you guys make them. According to some studies, 60% of you know, people in the U.S. still make New Year's resolutions. Do you want to guess how many of the 60% keep their New Year's resolutions? Throw out a number. Out of 60%, how many? Two, ten, yeah, you guys, you know, you're right on. Eight percent. Eight percent of people keep them. And why is that? It's because so often the change we want in our life, the motivator is external. We want to lose weight and look more like this person, or we want to have a bank account and have the things that that person has, and it's all external motivation. It's not something that gets down into our inner being. So Paul knows that Christ must settle deep down within us in the place where real change happens, and he knows that when Christ dwells in our inner being, when our inner being is well cared for, then no matter how difficult our external circumstances are, inwardly, we can have a calm and a peace that seems like it's otherworldly. So Paul prays for strength in our inner being that comes when Christ takes up residence with us. And the word he uses for dwell or residence is the Greek word katakase. It's fun to say, so I said it. Which is to settle down or make home a permanent residence. We don't want the Holy Spirit just to come for a visit for an hour on a Saturday or Sunday. We want the Holy Spirit to come and take residence in our lives, to be permanently dwelling in our inner being. And that is how, in Paul's words, we can become rooted and grounded in love. The more we meditate on the love of Christ, the more we spend thinking about how great his love is for us, 
the more it becomes a part of us. It's like those Gatorade commercials that I used to hate, where they're drinking so much Gatorade that they're sweating Gatorade. I think that was always gross. Why would I ever want to drink that much Gatorade? But it's, it's like that. Is it in you? Is he in you? Is he a part of you? Then we go on to learn in this passage that it is only with the Spirit dwelling in us that we are able to even begin to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul says we can't even fathom how grand God's love is without God. It's so much bigger than anything we could possibly fathom. I mean, how can we know something that surpasses knowing? Only with supernatural help can we begin to grasp a love that would lay down their life for us, for enemies, for those that hated them, disagreed with him, wanted nothing to do with him. That is otherworldly kind of love that we can't access without the one who created all of us and all of the worlds and all of the universe. The prolific author and theologian John Stott writes in his commentary on Ephesians that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. By reflecting on this love through prayer and meditation, through scripture, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, Paul learned to embody this love, and in doing so, he was changed from a murderer to a missionary. It is this kind of supernatural enabling that ignited a movement of love and nonviolence during the civil rights movement. And it is this kind of love that our world desperately needs now. There are so many stories of supernatural love that I could share with you and how it's impacted others, but I wanted to share one that was deeply personal for me. About 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to help a very broken, wounded, and scarred child of God come to know her Savior, and begin a journey toward healing. Her past was riddled with abuse, neglect, anxiety, and fear. But with God's help, slowly, we walked together out of that darkness and into the light of his love. She received Christ's love and sacrifice. She graduated from college. She got married. She started a career in a family. And I saw her change from the inside out. No longer afraid, no longer having nightmares. She knew she was loved, but her struggle wasn't over. Two years into her marriage, her husband divorced her, which left her alone with a little one. She was going through hell and needed a friend and mentor like me. But I was going through my own hell at the time. And because of my own struggle and my own brokenness, I kept to myself. She reached out many times, and though I prayed for her, I didn't respond. I was sure that our friendship was lost, and all the good work that I had done in her life, with God's help, maybe came to nothing, and and it broke my heart, but it was my fault. I did the things I didn't want to do, and I didn't do the things I wanted to do. Then one day, out of the blue, after a long time of silence, she sent me this text that I'm going to read in its entirety. She said, in everything I've learned about Jesus and everything you taught me, it's pretty clear to me that a few simple things are important. Love him, love your neighbor, 
love your enemies. I don't really have enemies, so it's easy to think I get a free pass on that one. But when I think about the fear and insecurity and hurt that causes me to put up barriers around a few people in my life, I try to remember the example that God himself set. Love isn't complicated. God doesn't force himself on us. And he certainly doesn't get mad when we don't respond right away. There are so many times in my life that I see God loving me, calling for me, pleading for me, pleading for me to accept his love, but I just wasn't ready to respond. Yet he didn't get mad or impatient or hurt. He waited patiently and loved me even more when I wasn't ready to respond to his love. He convinces us with love and he does it without fear or shame. He doesn't raise his finger or his voice. He lets the power of love and acceptance do all the talking and I have the same opportunity to love like him in other people's lives every day. I don't know all the songs in the hymnals and I don't know near enough stories in the Bible, but I believe that I'm starting to try and know God more by loving those around me, even the ones that are difficult to love. That's what Jesus did for me. That's what you taught me. And if I want to know him, I need to love like him because no matter what happens to us or around us, love is bigger. When I received that text, I learned again that love is bigger. It is bigger than any division in our lives, any past hurts and pains. Love is bigger, finds a way to heal, to hope, to reconcile. Love is bigger than any of us can ever imagine, but we should try. And we are called to love bigger in a world where the love of most is growing cold. And we can't do it alone. We need each other and we absolutely need Jesus dwelling in us so that we may be known in our homes, at the grocery store, on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, at work and in the public square, and yes, even at church, that we are people who love really, really well. We've made these cards for you guys today to take with you. Um, on the back of the card is just the prayer of Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. I encourage you to put this somewhere where you're going to see it on a regular basis. To put it somewhere where you'll be reminded to pray this prayer and pray it for yourselves. Pray it for your family. Pray it for Crosswalk Portland. We've got a lot of exciting things coming up. Next week, Pastor Uriel, our new youth and young adult pastor, will be joining us. And we're so excited to have him fully on board. A couple weeks after that, Pastor Lydia Mitchell will be coming to join us. Lydia is going to help us look at the community needs around this area. How do we continue to grow our impact and our footprint? Because we want the people of Fairview, of Gresham, and Portland to know that Crosswalk Portland exists. If we were to leave, we'd want them to feel it. We want to be a people that love really, really well. So pray this prayer for us. Pray this prayer for Crosswalk. Pray it for yourselves so that we may be lights that can shine in the darkness. And before I pray this prayer over us, I'd like to close with one of my favorite quotes from Dr. King. I use it regularly as a reminder for myself. He says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot, cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So let us be light, live love, and never forget our first love, 
as we seek to be a church that loves well. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we are in a nation and in a time in our world where the love of many is growing cold. We have forgotten what it is like to be community. We've forgotten what it is like to love. Father, help us, please. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our shortcomings. Forgive us of the times when we fall short. God, but come into our lives. Bring us healing. Heal our brokenness. Unite us. Reconcile us. Forgive us. And help us to be a loving people. And I'm just going to pray that prayer Paul taught us. Father, God. Oh, Lord Jesus. To the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask for or imagine. We pray that from your glorious, unlimited resources, that you will empower us with inner strength through your spirit so that Christ may make his home in our hearts as we trust in him. May our roots grow down deep into God's love and keep us strong. And may we have the power to understand, as all of God's people should, how wide and long and high and deep is his love. May we experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then may we be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.